Hi, I'm Diane Worthington and from Women Beyond a Certain Age. And today we have the pleasure of a guest that I've been looking forward to interviewing for a long time. Her name is Veronica Hinky, and she is an expert in food history and the culinary na narrative. She's the author of the acclaimed historical novel, The Last Night on the Titanic, Unsinkable Drinking, Dining, and Style. Welcome, Veronica. Good morning, Diane. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. And as you know, we're recording this on a very special day. It's the 100th anniversary of the Titanic today, the, the morning that so many people were um, being rescued. Others, you know, were, were not able to survive. And all the stories that I was able to tell in this book are just incredibly inspiring. I think that's the word, inspiration, particularly during these really difficult times that we're all going through. When I sat with the book, and I have now read it twice, because <laughs> I recommended it in my Chicago Tribune column for um, holiday giving, and now when I knew we were uh, going to be together, I wanted to go back and look through it and remember the things that I thought were, there were so many things about it that I think are great, but the the concept, I think, is um, about the people and about hopefulness and the importance of recognizing that in tragedy, there's, there's things that you can find that aren't tragic and, in fact, are very hopeful. Um, I want to ask you, what made you decide to do this book with all the books that are out on the Titanic? Well, there are a lot of books out on the Titanic. I, I read many of them as I researched this book. For me, this was a special project as a food writer uh, with the Chicago Tribune and other outlets that I've written over the years for regarding food. Uh, you know, I, I really wanted to do something special to acknowledge the 100th year after the sinking of the Titanic. And that was back in 2012. So I wanted okay. to take a look. I really started researching a year in advance, knowing that this huge anniversary was coming up. Um, and I wanted to focus on the drinking and dining. And I knew already that there was at least one book out on the topic about the food that was served on that last night, the lavish first class dinner. I wanted to look at some of the questions I had always asked myself. What was the crew eating? Uh, what were people eating in steerage? What was on the breakfast menu? Because the breakfasts were interesting. Last night, we celebrated here the 100th anniversary of the sinking with baked apples, which were, of course, uh, on the breakfast menu in first class on April 11th. And mm -hmm. I just, I found those, uh, those notes from menus really intriguing. And um, so I wanted to really delve into the foods and of course the, the drinking, the, the cocktails that are so iconic of that era, the Tom Collins, the Robert Burns, the Rob Roy and more. And so it's, it's really a time capsule. And I think the, a, a really intriguing way of looking at that is through the food and drinking. Yes, and I think that's what you did, but it was also reflected in the people like I'm thinking about John Jacob Astor when you talked all about his life and who he was and what these people were like. I mean, you got this like 
really inside view. I, one of the great uh, comments someone made on the boat was that they sat next to John Jacob Astor, who was considered one of the wealthiest men in the world at that time, and said, God, he's just like us. Mm -hmm. He's sitting on the deck, sitting next to us. He's like a person. And you get this human part to this, along with the food, that it's just really inspiring, Veronica. Um, the Titanic menu was a springtime menu. I particularly like the sweet pea soup and the sweet pea souffle. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was there anything particular? Were there lots of spring uh, ingredients that were used for all of the um, classes or was it only the first class and then you were only getting tripe and things like that in steerage? Pretty much. I mean, the first class, those first class menus were really the most telling of the use of seasonal ingredients, asparagus, um, there was rhubarb, which would have already been cut, sprouting, you know, in parts of England, which is a little warmer climate than um, the Midwest where I am and um, probably similar to uh, California where you are. Um, so yeah, just definite hints of spring throughout those menus. And, um, you know, there were spring onions and all sorts of different ingredients that were aboard the Titanic and, and we see them celebrated so well on the menus. Um, it was, it's, that's what I love about it. I think is that it's a real, um, it's a very distinct uh, seasonal menu. It's a, it's a distinct look at the um, season of when the Titanic was sailing um, that, that was not lost on the people who planned the venues. And I, I really wanted to highlight that in the book because we know we're not the first generation to be celebrating the seasons in our cuisine. It's it's good to be reminded of that that we didn't right with seasonal and uh, you know farm to table. It's been around a long time. Yes, yes. <laughs> I was fascinated with some of the people that were on the ship. Um, and their stories, which we can go into, lots that many of us knew nothing about. Um, you kind of talk, well, you do talk about a number of different people from different classes, etc. But there are some wonderful stories of hope in this book that would be worth chatting about. I think people, we all know about the unsinkable Molly Brown. Yes but there's way more than just her. And you can tell us a little bit about her that we might not know. And then maybe a couple of these other kind of heroes well, and survivors. Yes, and some of the, the women were really exceptional in the things that they did, even in a society that was much more restrictive at the time and what women were allowed to do and what was socially acceptable. I'm glad you mentioned Margaret Molly Brown. We know her uh, uh, through um, the media as the unsinkable Molly Brown, and she was depicted in at least one movie about her life. Um, and what was really unusual about her is that, you know, a misconception um, in, I think, in movies that have depicted her is that she, she was very selfless. I don't think that comes across in the depictions I've seen, but throughout her life, um, which was a rags to riches story. She grew up as the daughter of a man who dug ditches. She 
um, cleaned tobacco leaves. She stripped them as a child to help support her family. And she ended up marrying a man she loved. She didn't marry him for money, but shortly after they married, he um, became a millionaire because he um, was able to strike, strike gold into their marriage. And so she ended up fabulously wealthy. And uh, we see that in the movies about her, but what we don't see depicted is how she, um, her history, in, yeah, right. um, of her life. We don't see the incredible benevolence that she always displayed, um, working with um, the Catholic charities in Denver where she lived. She worked with Benjamin Guggenheim, who was also on the Titanic in 1900, just 12 years before the Titanic. She organized a banquet for the less fortunate in Denver for 1,500 people with Mr. Guggenheim. And in Lifeboat 6, where Molly was um, 108 years ago this morning, where she was floating with many women and uh, Robert Hitchens, the Titanic quartermaster, um, she was focused on helping others. And that is what I think is really exceptional in her story is that she organized the women to row and take turns rowing so that they could stay warm or at least try to stay warm. And then once oh, aboard right. the Carpathia, the rescue ship, um, Margaret or Molly, as many know her, distributed food. She handed out cups of drinks and she passed out uh, blankets. While she was still aboard the Carpathia, she organized a group mostly of men, decision makers at that time were mostly men, of course, and she organized them to celebrate and thank Captain Rostron, who was the captain of the Carpathia. Um, and they presented him with a, an award later on. And she got that all started while she was still aboard Carpathia, which is probably not what a lot of us would be doing at that time, thinking of others. And then, of course, when you know, years later, um, months later, even already, she wasn't able to testify in the U.S. Senate hearings because she was a woman. So she did what she could. She helped organize a Titanic memorial in Washington, D.C., and she galvanized people in the fight for workers' rights and uh, women's rights and education. So um, her story is just beyond remarkable, and it was really enlightening to me. It's bigger than what we know, generally speaking. It's way bigger and more important about the person that she really was. You know, they, I just remember thinking, or is this sort of fun, you know, in the movies, uh, person. And wow, she was an extraordinary woman. You're right. She almost balanced that act between comic relief and Titanic passenger, which we see in many cases. And um, there was just so much more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are other people that, or, well, first of all, let's talk about the band. Yeah. So that, that is what is truly remarkable when we look at what we're going through right now with the, with COVID-19, um, with what we're experiencing and how at that time when they were facing their mortality and so many unknowns, which is similar to the uncertain days we're facing the band, did, right. they did what a lot of us are doing now. They did what they could do and what they did well. And they knew how they brought joy to people's lives. And they did that at that moment. And we know because 
Uh, Violet Jessup, who was a stewardess, told people after the disaster that she ran into John Hume, or also known as Jock Hume, who was the first violinist. And he said to her, you know, we're just going to go and cheer people up a little bit because people are very worried and scared. And um, they they did. They got out their instruments and they did what um, what they knew would help people at that time. And, um, you know, in recent weeks, I've been reminded of that so many times. Yes. So so there uh, there was and then let's talk about the head baker. Oh, yes. Charles Jockin. Uh, was the head baker aboard the Titanic, and his story is beyond phenomenal. And he too, it's interesting that you ask about him because he also has been depicted in comic relief in movies about the Titanic. You can see him in the movies holding a flask and hanging on for dear life, and he's depicted as a drinker. He he, he did call the right. um, British inquiry officials that he had been drinking. But what I learned through talking with his family members and researching the inquiry with British officials is why he started drinking that night. Or one of the things that brought him to that point, he had looked at his uh, chart that he had become very familiar with because he had spent his whole life on the sea. He had worked on ships since he was a little boy and he knew to look at his emergency checklist. He did that on Thursday before the sinking. The Titanic sunk on uh, Sunday evening, and already Thursday he had marked out his duties that he would complete and which lifeboat he would be manning. And when it came time to man that lifeboat, you know he had already distributed bread, gotten his staff to load up the lifeboats with bread and other uh, things from the kitchen that they could put on to support the lifeboats, and then it was time for him to help um, load up the lifeboat. Once he filled up the lifeboat that he was going to be manning, or so he thought, someone else was given that direction. They were given a, an order to board, and Charles was not given the command to board. So that is when, as he told the British inquiry officials, he went down to his bunk to have a nip, as he puts it, and um, very often, uh, crew members in those days would have makeshift stills in their bunk area. Uh, Charles would have had access to fruit and flour and yeast and things to be able to make that flour, but yeast to be able to make a still. So he very well could have had his own um, homemade concoction in there. But then when he, he came back upstairs, he didn't just, that's not all he was doing was drinking. He came back upstairs and saw the um, deck chairs. And he thought, you know, if I can throw all these deck chairs into the ocean, maybe there'll be one that I can grab onto. And I, I love that story because he, he used all of his might to get those up high and out. As he threw them as far as he could get them to go because the concern was that when the Titanic went completely under the suction would um, take things down with it. So he used all of his might, even though he was going to need his strength, so that he could throw as many chairs as possible for people who needed them, and himself, of course. And he did through because they were they were wood and they weren't going to sink immediately. Exactly. Right? Yeah, they were they were very heavy wood, um, very thick and heavy, and so. 
um, he, he did that in just a remarkable sense of a spirit of survival. That's what I would uh, say is the most remarkable thing to me about Charles Jockin is he, he did not quit and he hung on for dear life. He uh, was out in the water for many hours grasping from person to person, from uh, boat to boat. He ended up being able to hang on with someone and get on a boat. Um, thanks to his uh, knowledge of the cruise over the years, he, he did survive. You know, I think what's interesting for me when I was reading the book was realizing just in the ionosphere of life, what I thought of as the Titanic is just a terrible, terrible, terrible thing that happened. Tragedy, horrible. And you read your book, and of course it was that, but it also had this piece to it about these incredible human beings. And you can't help thinking how this is relevant to today with the surgeons and nurses and the people that are the incredible people dealing in this nightmare that we're living yeah. through. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that you experienced that because that was my hope at the time. And when I worked on this book, I, of course, like everyone else, had no idea what we all would be facing as, as a country. I think it's very helpful for all of us to remember in the midst of such tragedy and difficulty, there is always hope and possibility going on simultaneously. It gets, it gets muted and it's hard to even see it through the nightmare. But I think that's a lot of what your book uh, really talks about, the positives in the middle of a nightmare, you know? But it's also about the food, obviously. That was very important to you. And I'm not kidding you. The first thing I have to say is when I read the dinner they did the night of the uh, sinking, I mean, they could have sunk just by what they ate. It was so much. I could not believe the entree courses were multiple entrees. There were like nine or 10 courses. I'm thinking, you know, and you did write about how they would walk around the ship to get their exercise during the day. I mean, truly, it was it was because they had to do that to even go into the dining room and begin. The meals were enormous. So talk a little bit about that. They really were. And, and I personally grew up in a very Escoffier type of dining experience very often with the holidays and so forth. And it's all about pacing yourself. And it's more about the... Uh, culture. It's more about celebrating the foods. You, it's not about getting full. It's about things like the palate cleanser. Um, you know that. The you know, yeah. Tell talk about that. That's one of the most popular menu items now. Is the punch romaine, and um, you know it's it can be prepared in a, a variety of ways, and it was basically a lemon ice and. Um, you know, it was something that was served in between courses to clean your palate. Um, we we just call it a palate cleanser now. So it wasn't always a punch romaine. But what I loved about learning about the punch romaine is that um, there's a whole world of palate cleansers out there and different recipes for things that you can make. And I, I always love to uncover a whole new topic in food and 
that certainly is one right. of them. How many different things can you think of for cleaning your palate? Um, there were also, you know, cheese courses and multiple dessert courses. I, I really liked looking at the different cheeses that were on board at lunchtime every day because it showed you that there was a very um, distinct assortment of cheeses that the Edwardians preferred. Um, and that's really what Titanic is for us, is uh, it's a directional to those things. Um, as far as that last dinner, 108 years ago, last night, it was incredible with you know everything from muscles to um, you know, different, several different courses. There were the oysters. What I didn't understand is, I, I mean, I've been to many, many dinners, and I'm trying to figure out, was this like Nouvelle Cuisine, tiny little portions, or they it was a lot of excess, and they just, you know, they take a taste and move on, because they knew what was coming. Yeah, that was definitely the case, that it was uh, little, little bites, you know, um, of course, you could Philip, if you wanted to, I'm sure, but um, you know, it definitely wasn't something that it, it wasn't culturally acceptable to be filling up on all these things. So they started out with hors d'oeuvres, they had oysters, um, and then for the second course, there was um, a consomme Olga and cream of barley. So they had two soups. Um, they had a third course, which was poached salmon with mousseline sauce and cucumbers. Um, a fourth course was filet mignon, or you could have sautéed chicken, or a, here's another glimpse at how they lived much like us. There was a vegetarian option. You could order a vegetable um, maro farsi, which is like a, um, it's heavy with um, vegetables in it. And, and then a fifth course, so two um, entree courses. The fifth course had right. lamb with mint sauce. There's another spring ingredient roast duckling with applesauce, another springtime um, entree, and sirloin of beef with chateau potatoes. I like, by the way, Veronica, I like that you had the recipes for these in there. I mean, I'm clearly at some point going to have to do a Titanic dinner, <laughs> as many people have. And you can really do it simply, Diane, like with um, green peas, cream car carrots were on the menu, boiled rice, um, and then uh, new potatoes. There's another spring item. Then mm -hmm. the sixth course was the punch romaine that I mentioned, the palate cleanser. And then a seventh course, believe it or not, was a roast squab and crust, another springtime item. And an eighth course was just a simple dish of cold asparagus with vinaigrette. And then the ninth course was um, foie gras and celery. And the, the final course, the 10th course, was the dessert. And they had Waldorf pudding, peaches, and chartreuse jelly. Or you could have chocolate and vanilla eclairs or French ice cream. French vanilla, right? Yes, that's vanilla. I mean, really, when you just recited that, Veronica, it's like, I mean, I really love that the last course before dessert was foie gras. <laughs> right. And at any rate, this is how... They dined. It was called Edwardian dining. Can you describe what that means? The Edwardian era is the area right before Prohibition. So much like the Victorian era, it's it has its own distinct style. And we see a lot of that in the foods that people were eating at the time. And 
nowhere in my awareness is that more clear in, than in the Titanic menus. Um, so it, there is a tendency to confuse Edwardian and Victorian. And um, to be clear, it's the period right after the reign of Queen Victoria and right before Prohibition. Well, it was very complicated and uh, I guess it was the height of sophistication at that, you know, that, that style. So if you were going to say, what was the most interesting thing you learned from researching this book, which by the way, how long did that take you? I would, we would love to hear that. Well, I started researching this book as a child. I, mean, I, I had researched forever. There was a man who was from near my hometown who was a popcorn vendor who lost his life on the Titanic. And I always was intrigued by him since I was a little girl. I was asked to write the book, though, in 2017, in January of that year. And um, so I started really a focused research process for this book specifically, and it lasted about two years. My research entailed, you know, everything from reading old newspapers to working at the um, Library of Congress, interviewing family members, which I really enjoyed. And I also gained a lot of information from Facebook. I connected with a variety of people who had family recipes on Facebook. Um, a good example of that is you mentioned it earlier, Diane, the tripe. So we knew there was tripe served in steerage and what an interesting concept. And the question was, where could we find people that would be able to talk about tripe for the book? We wanted to have a spotlight on it. And uh, through Facebook, I was able to locate people who had been uh, triumphing their family recipes on Facebook for the public. And I'm still in touch with several of those people that I um, connected with that way. And um, it's just really neat. The book has been an amazing project for me. Well, I can only tell you that it was a thrill to be part of it and reading it. And I want to say to everybody that's listening, it's really a wonderful book to, to buy right now because of what's going on in our world. Veronica, I cannot thank you enough. The book, again, is called The Last Night on the Titanic, unsinkable drinking dining and style and no doubt you can find it on amazon or kindle or something thanks again veronica really such a great book right now i just thank you bye